0: Hello and welcome, you're listening to the Music for Education and Wellbeing podcast. Join us each month to hear ideas, inspiration and practical advice from people making change through music. These conversations are hosted by me Anita Holford of Music Education Works and Writing Services. So I'll be focusing in particular on breaking down barriers to music through communication and advocacy, but from quite a broad perspective. I really hope you'll enjoy them and now on with the show. So, hello, it's Anita here and welcome to this month's podcast. In this episode, I'm talking with another Anita, Dr. Anita Collins, educator, researcher and writer in the field of brain development and music learning. You may know Anita from her TED-Ed lesson, How Playing an Instrument Benefits Your Brain, and her TEDx talk, What If Every Child Had Access to Music Education from Birth. And more recently, she starred in the Australian version of a British TV show called Don't Stop the Music. Welcome, Anita. And thank you so much for agreeing to chat to me today. It's really, really lovely to have you here.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to chat to you.
0: Well we've been talking from time to time haven't we for I think it's a couple of years now so it's just really great to be able to share one of our conversations with the world and that's why I kind of wanted to do this podcast because I get to talk to such amazing people um, and now I get to share it so it's, it's brilliant to talk to you. So before I go on to asking you about the research around brain development and music I'm always really curious to know where or perhaps how people find their passion so can I start by just asking you how did you end up here and why is it so important to you? Okay it's a long story I'll try and
1: make it entertaining Um, (laughs) I was going to I was training to be an orchestral musician I'm a clarinet player Uh, and I had that dream of being a rank and file orchestral player and I kind of got to the end of my performance degree and it really wasn't doing it for me that 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 Version of life was not something I was excited about, and so I must admit I, I went with the advice of my parents of doing something sensible, and oh. I, went up, <laughs> I went up and did an education degree. Um, and I distinctly remember I was I was in the third week of this degree. It was only a one year additional degree, and I was sitting there. I still remember I was in a lecture, and I just went, "This is exactly what I should be doing. This is exactly my place." And I've I've never lost that feeling. Music education is is where my best work can be done, and where I can push myself, but also really really contribute back to children and to to parents and to to the greater group around the world. As it turns out, which is really lovely. Um, when it came to music and the brain, I was searching for a a topic for my PhD. And, and you get a lot of advice when you're doing this sort of thing. And, and someone said to me, just do the easiest, most research topic there is and get it done as quickly as possible. All it is is a tick in the box. And then other people would say, look, you, you know, it's it's going to be your life achievement. Essentially, it's going to be like having another child. And it has to be important to you and you have to you have to really want it because about halfway through, it just gets super hard. Uh, and you don't want to. You want to stop. It's it's just really taxing. And so I listened to both sets of advice, and thought about it. And then I thought, well, you know what? I need to be passionate about things. So I spent about nine months reading everything I possibly could about anything to do with music education, waiting for that one moment where I would, I don't know, there would be this spark, and I'd go, "That's it." And it ended up happening, but not in the way I thought it would. I read this article from a similar person to myself, a, a neuromusical educator who was in the US and he had he was interviewing four neuroscientists and he asked the question, what do you think music educators should know about your field or what you've found? And they talked and I got to the end and I was furious because I didn't need to know any of that. I needed <laughs> the whole list of other things that I wanted to know and I thought that's my topic because I'm so... I'm so passionate about the fact that they're going in the wrong direction and I I want to use my skills as a music educator to find out something for music educators. So that got me set on the path. Strangely enough, halfway through, I figured out two things. I was also doing it to answer two important questions. One was on our presentation nights, and, you know, most schools have them, and you have, say, the top 10 kids get up in front of everybody and they receive their sort of awards, often academic awards or effort awards, things like that. And every single time, every single year group, I would watch them and go musician, 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 you know, and I get always seven or eight of these kids out of 10 who'd played a musical instrument to a very high level. And I wanted to know if that had anything to do with the fact that they played music or if they were just really smart kids and smart kids took up music. And the second thing I wanted to know was I was eight or nine. And I still couldn't read very well. I could pretend I was reading, but I couldn't actually read. It was made worse by the fact that my mum was a a reading teacher.
0: So it was was
1: really horrible. And on the firstborn child, it was like, yeah, she just couldn't help her child to read. But someone at the age of nine gave me a clarinet, but also I think more importantly taught me how to read music. And there was something about that process that about six months later, I could really figure out, start to figure out words. And I think ultimately I'm trying to answer that question of did music education actually change my life? Because I would have had a whole different life if I had continued to be unable to read. Um, And I honestly think the reason I keep studying and learning is because I keep having to prove to myself that I, I actually can do it, that I can read. So...
0: Yeah, those are the many reasons why I'm
1: involved in the field I'm
0: involved in. That's such an amazing story. And it's really lovely because it links with all the type of stuff that you're interested in and all all the stuff that I'm interested in, particularly young people in challenging circumstances. And I'm sure we could have a whole podcast interview about young people and dyslexia and all sorts of things like that. That's really fascinating and it's so personal to you. So moving on to the research, I've heard you talk about there being three main areas where music can have an impact on brain development in children. And I think that's really good to um, put it in such a tangible way. So can you tell me a little bit more about those areas? Yeah,
1: sure. You've got to remember about research that when the research first started, they were finding that music education seemed to help a huge list of things. And that was almost a bad thing because people looked at this list and went, how can one activity do so much for the brain? Yeah. Where we've moved in the research is that it started to distill itself down into a a group of categories which has become more useful all the same things are still there but it's kind of like no no there's three main themes that are running through that may change we may get another load of research that comes through and goes you know that that thinking was was not quite right we know more now and that's the very nature of research it's evolving and it's continuing to expand what we understand but the three areas that we're sitting with now are language development executive function development and social skills development Now, the language development is probably the most advanced because it was one of the first that was really discovered. The other reason it's so advanced is because language and music processing share an overlapping neural network. That means that when our brains process music and when they process language, they do it using the same systems. And what's more interesting is as we've gone uh, early younger and younger and younger, we've started to see how music really is kind of our first language. It's the first processing network we use to understand speech sounds. And from that, we then almost grow our language centre out of that knowledge of our music centre. And it continues to they kind of loop back on each other constantly. Um, and so it's really great for children because we know that if you complement literacy learning and language learning with music, that they will thrive because of the fact that it's basically just a double workout for the brain. The second area is executive function. This is my actual favorite out of the three. <laughs> I call it um, our grown-up skills. So executive function is that group of skills that we spend all of our childhood learning. Uh, we're not born with them. And they're the ones that in the end, if you take away all the maths formulas and all the, uh, you know, the history dates, they're the ones that we send our kids out into the world with. They're things like being able to pay attention, being able to regulate our own mood being able to understand how someone else is feeling and actually to have empathy. Um, How to have agency, meaning you can see someone's in trouble and you act to help them. The ability to plan, the ability to organise yourself, the ability to see consequences from something. It's all those really grown up skills that even as grown ups a lot of the time we we struggle to always have. (laughs) But through particularly learning music in an ensemble, it's kind of like they're all wrapped up in a beautiful bow in that one activity and they help to for kids to learn them very, very slowly, but very effectively.
0: So is that just, um, ensemble music learning that that no, impact comes no, from?
1: No, no, it comes from one of the ingredients for cognitive development. So we now know that there's certain, it's not just all music education. There's a certain version of music education, which enhances cognitive development. And that is um, one of the parts of the ingredients I talk about with that is that every kid needs to have ensemble learning experiences as well as individual learning experiences and for very different reasons. But both of those combined develop our executive function.
0: Brilliant. Okay. And then the other one was social skills.
1: Social skills. So these social skills are not those ones that we try and teach kids. They're not the pleasers and thank yous and be kind and all that. It's not those ones. These are the really nuanced, innate, often non-verbal social skills. So, how do you how do you know when it's your turn to speak in a conversation? How do you know how someone is feeling by the kind of shape of their body in a way? Of oh, you know how do you how do you listen to somebody and go or look at them and think I don't really trust you? They're, they're those sorts of really nuanced social skills. How do you actually work in a team and realise when it's not your turn and when you need to make space or leave space for somebody else? So they're, again, those very sought after in in professional life skills, but also they're the ones that really feed into positive relationships, both professional and personal.
0: That's fantastic, because that really links into my next question, particularly around social skills and uh, young people who've had early difficult childhood experiences because there is some research evidence that you've talked about and it's, it's sort of all linked to, to those three areas really about the really powerful impact of music education on young people in challenging circumstances can you tell me a little bit more about that
1: yeah so a lot of the research has been done and it'll use lots of different terms but um, with kids who come from disadvantaged backgrounds low socioeconomic backgrounds or underserved backgrounds whichever term you like to use but it's because they sort of noticed that when music programs went into these areas, you know, high levels of poverty, high levels of domestic violence, they found, you know, it really did flip the switch, and they really were starting to thrive, and they wanted to understand why. And it comes down to the fact that living in challenging circumstances actually changes the brain structure and function of a young child. It actually makes it develop in a different kind of way, uh, and that kind that way is often it doesn't as function as well for learning because it's sort of constantly in fear or constantly in trauma. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Yeah, and what music, music learning does for that, that fact is help to that, kind of rewire that sort of an original wiring in a way that is a bit more positive and it gives them personal experiences of achievement and also helps particularly a lot of these kids have very low language levels and very, very low, what's called inhibition control. But that's basically the ability to not fly off the handle when you get upset. It's about to stop for a second, take a breath, and be able to manage yourself. And kids in challenging circumstances, for a number of reasons, are not good at those two things. Language, as we talked about, is really connected with music. So as soon as they start to feel and are literally being rewired in a way that helps them communicate better, then they can start to talk about their emotions. They're also experiencing emotion through music in a safe way, and that's a really important thing. And the other part is they start to learn how to be aware, a bit more aware of their body, not to live so much in fear and have trauma-based reactions to something. And, And the reason why the research has done so well in this area is because it's shown a profound effect on these kids' brain development that becomes permanent that again changes their lives. It changes their life journey because you're actually sort of changing the wiring that's gone on from those challenging circumstances and putting in place a more positive wiring.
0: And that's really significant, isn't it, in a child's life? There's a lots, lots of children who have experienced early trauma and have, it's the prehistoric brain that gets affected by that early trauma, isn't it? And there's lots of sort of interventions that are used to try to address that. And music's such a wonderful intervention because that's something a child would probably choose to do. I'm particularly interested to know, is there any kind of cutoff point of which somebody is too old, really, to have that transformational effect on their brain?
1: Not that they've found so far. So they've found all the way through life. So we've now have studies from everything from in infants through to people in their early 20s, people in their 40s and 50s, which is a really important time for our brain, uh, and then people into their 70s. So it's had, it has impacts all the way through. I, part of it has to be it's not just a one-off experience. It's not just an hour of having a go at playing a guitar. It's actually learning a musical instrument in that sequential way a little bit every single day and that's the that's the recipe for having that cognitive change it's not just an experience so i think when i look at a lot of programs they they change these kids lives for a little while but there's no permanent change that happens for them And i think that's how we need to look at it we need to look at how can we help them on a much more sustainable permanent
0: basis so that's a really big kind of debate in UK music education and when when any of us as music education advocates use the research we're always really aware not to claim benefits that are from a particular type of uh, music education so Mm -hmm. I'm really interested to know from you kind of what is that recipe and you know how long does a young person have to be doing this sort of regular sequential music learning for an impact to take place? I know that's quite a difficult question, but just what, no, what no, would no. be the recipe? The current place
1: we're sitting with the research it has a couple of different components to it. One is it needs to be on a musical instrument, so it needs to be outside the body and engaging the motor cortices. And Can a lot of people go. say, Well, what about singing? And singing is the other part we need, so we actually need singing and moving as a combination of yeah. learning and instrument one won't do it you need the combination.
0: Can I just ask about music technology whether you what? count that as a musical instrument and whether it would have the same effects because I think that's another thing that there's lots of discussion over is you know is music technology will that have the same effects of something like somebody learning um fundamentals of music on an iPad on GarageBand or something yeah. like that. They what haven't done
1: that? as they haven't done as much research on it However, what they have done is showing that it doesn't have the same impact. Kids literally need to be moving keys and moving slides and, and moving bows to get that, those parts of the brain actually moving. So while GarageBand might be a way of creating music and absolutely should be included where appropriate, it's not going to benefit the cognitive development. I think what you mentioned before is important. We need to separate the benefits for cognitive development from the benefits of musical development and what's more for me I think they should coexist I don't think it should be an either or because if it's an either or then we're not helping the kids out we should actually be going we want you to develop musically and cognitively through this experience
0: yeah, absolutely. So a child might learn on GarageBand because that's the easiest thing. That's their entry point into music. That makes them feel confident, um, and they might mm-hmm. learn some fundamentals of music, and that might then therefore get them onto other forms of music.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you asked before about the recipe.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, so at the moment, um, and and it is my reading along with a few uh, particularly British uh, researchers who have, have looked at this it has to be on an instrument, and it also has to have singing and moving included in it. Now, if I use my example, I am a concert band conductor and and I'm still a music teacher. Um, In the concert band tradition, we don't get up and move around and we don't sing. We sit in our (laughs) chairs and we have our music and we play. So the biggest change this has made for me is it's like, okay, well, if this is one of the ingredients, how do I do this with my students? So I took a, a, I had a rehearsal this morning and they were playing and they couldn't get it in tune. And I went, right, let's stop. Okay, we're all going to sing it. And my students are quite used to this now but we all sang it. And I said, right, I want you to listen to a third and I want you to make it sound like we're all one choir and they've got it perfectly in tune. And then I said, right now, I want you to mirror that on your instrument. And they got the note perfectly in tune.
0: Brilliant. There's a
1: lot, yeah, there's a lot of, and a lot of people go, well, of course they would, but we have traditions of how we teach certain instruments and we teach certain ensembles that don't include that. So it's, it's a really good piece of research to then say, okay, How do we improve our practice across different things, um, different ensembles and different ways of teaching in order to, to make sure that that cognitive development is being nurtured? Another part of the recipe is reading music, and that's reading traditional notation. Notation is a sound to symbol system. Which means we see a symbol and we create the sound for that. Now, reading letters and words is exactly the same system. We do exactly the same thing, which is why kids who learn music and reading music very early on, even if it's you know, just simple symbols, when they get to reading actual words in English or any language, it's actually easier for their brain because their brain goes, "Oh, I've done this before." Um, and yeah. so, one of the ingredients is then reading music. Another one is performing music now that's for all the reasons that are not about performing to an audience it's all the stuff that comes around it like the nervousness just before you walk on the stage the pushing yourself to go on stage even though every bone in your body goes i don't want to do this actually overcoming that Walking on stage, sitting down, performing, dealing with whatever happens in performance can be crazy things. (laughs) You know, coming off stage, being really elated and excited about what we did. And then also even the dip that comes, you know, what, 60 minutes or so later when the adrenaline stops flowing and you suddenly feel super tired and really, really just like you just want to go to sleep. Going through that, not constantly, but, you know, numerous times a year is fantastic for kids because it helps them deal with that, you know, real concern, walking on, performing, you know, and doing something that you're scared about doing and then coming off and going, hey, that was good. I want to do it again. And that the brain loves that. The brain is its reward system is going crazy when we're performing and it's loving it's loving that. So we need to have those two parts. And then there's two more, which are what I mentioned before: that instrumental learning and ensemble learning. The instrumental learning is important, and what I mean by that is having an expert teacher teaching an individual or a small group. And the reason we need that is because if we try to just teach ourselves, we we would pick stuff we could do. It's just normal. I <laughs> do to feel like
0: doing. I do that so when I play the piano. <laughs>
1: I know, we'd look at something and we you know, we look at the next one and go, Oh, that looks really hard. Want to <laughs> yeah. do that. But when you've got a teacher, the teacher says, No, no, that's the next step and I will help you get there. And so it's that, that fact that people that the teacher gives you things and push continues to push you through the process of doing something you never knew you could do. And then the ensemble part is for all those other executive function skills. How do you work in a team? How do you realise when you're the most important part of the team? And how do you back off when you're not the most important part of the team? How do you support each other in a really positive way? Because you're all making the performance together. You know, it's those, all those things that come from ensemble learning and feeling connected to each other, having that social experience where you are one. And we don't have, kids particularly don't have that very often in our sort of their daily life. And so when they come together in, in a musical situation, it's
0: really important. Okay. Absolutely. There's quite a few things I want to pick up on in that. Okay. So first of all, how long does a music programme ideally need to last for and how often? So for example, in the, in the UK, music education is in crisis and mm. a lot of schools are cutting their, their music input into the curriculum. So kids might get, if they're lucky, an hour a week um, <coughs> often not necessarily with an expert music teacher not a music specialist mm-hmm. occasionally they might get say ten weeks of a whole class music program with a specialist instrumental teacher so I'm talking mm-hmm. at primary music level now so is that enough you know when you get to secondary level in the UK you could be having just an hour every couple of weeks or even less than that so yeah it's just interested to know from you what's the minimum in a sense
1: so it's important to preface it by saying in order to see permanent cognitive change this is the research it's really hard because it's like to see permanent change you would need to study a group of people through their entire lives and we've only had 25 years of this research and we've only had about eight that have really started on the longitudinal study so We can't say it with anything definite, but we can say when they have seen significant, measurable, and what they determine as permanent change. So it has a lot to do with when kids do it. So the age of around seven, and it's not on everyone's seventh birthday, it's around seven, for the first seven years of a child's life, it's their first growing of their brain, the first wiring of their brain. And we often talk about kids as being a sponge. It's their sponge stage. And we know that at around the age of seven, their brains essentially are full and they start doing this thing. It's got a horrible name. It's called pruning. It uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> means our brain goes, I'm going to chuck lots of stuff out that I don't need, which is why we haven't got a huge number of memories before. That's sort of the age of five or so, um, unless they're very strong from a sensory point of view. Yeah, and it's 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 a really important time. Now, obviously, because it's the first wiring, it's the first, first it's the most effective time for music education because it sort of gets in and helps them to wire their brains really, really effective the first time around. So the current Standard is that if they're between zero and seven and they've had two years of what is called formal music education with all of those ingredients we talked about, then two years of continuous music education will achieve that permanent cognitive change. Wow. After the age of seven, so say, for example, kids haven't done any musical activities, or which is highly unlikely, but in some cases it happens. Um, after the age of seven, it increases by one year. So it goes to three years of continuous formal music education to result in permanent cognitive change. The gold standard from a really recent paper that's come out is five to seven years. Now, that doesn't mean it's five to seven years on a violin. You know, if kids are starting in year five and they've got You know, I often say to principals, five minutes, or sorry, 10 minutes a day, every day of the week is more powerful for cognitive development than 50 minutes Friday afternoon. So having, I know in Australia particularly, we're having quite a number of teachers who are starting their day with 10 minutes of music, and they're viewing it as a primer for their literacy education. They say they're priming their kids' brains for the literacy that comes next. But yeah, it sort of could be those kind of activities for two years or three years for some kids, followed by two years of more formal learning on an instrument. That's that's your five years. So it's not all about one instrument. It's about continuous age-appropriate music education that has all those ingredients as part of it. Does your Bigger Better Brains community help with that type of thing? my bigger better brains can help with the understanding of the brain science i think which is really important and i'm a very strong advocate that there isn't a one size fits all there is how best to you put all those ingredients together in your context and it will be different in the uk than it is here in australia and australia in a i work in a school that I often visit it, which is maybe three hours away from me, which in Australia is not far, Um, but they, you know, what they need to do in their school Mm -hmm. is entirely different to what I would do in a school that was down the road from me. And it's because, you know, every school is different. Every community is different. But what we're working with is this idea of ingredients. If these are the ingredients, if this is the amount of time, how do we do it best? And and you spoke about, you know, often not a music specialist. I'm working with a lot of schools who have not got any music specialists, but they're taking it on board as their responsibility as every teacher to deliver music education, but they're doing it in a very small steady kind of way so they're teaching each other how to do it they've got me as a mentor who's sort of walking them through a year of doing that so there's not a recipe um but there are so many groups around both in the uk and australia who are there to provide assistance with that we have professional development groups over here who do amazing things and go into schools to help and i'm sure you have them there too so it's about really the commitment of the head of the school To say, I know I've understood the research. I can see how it's going to benefit our school. Uh, I'd like to put it in place. What help do I need to do that? And what sort of plan do we need to do it? And I think, honestly, it takes about three years to really implement something that is working. And how are we going to measure the effect? And that, again, to me is really, really important. We shouldn't put anything into schools without also saying how we're going to measure the impact of what happens.
0: That's a really, really good point. So I realize that time's moving on and I haven't asked the questions that um, some people posted on LinkedIn and Twitter for you. So um, would that be okay if we go on to those now? Right, so first of all, Ruth Jones, who works for Wiltshire Music Hub and Trinity Arts Awards, asks, is tone deafness real or psychological, e.g. the result of a child being told they can't sing? Mm.
1: It's a really good question. And it's a fascinating term tone deafness the ability to not hear tone what it i get asked this question all the time i mean the first thing to talk about is there is a condition that is the equivalent of tone deafness and it's called amusia and i met an amusic and he's a fascinating man amazing journalist incredibly smart man but he said when he hears music it sounds like a car crash and oh my goodness <laughs> he, i know and i i took that away and i went wow what's his experience like of the world because every time you go into a mall an airport um you get put on hold on a call to your your telecommunications you know you're, you've got this music in your ear what's life like for him but also he was doing research on this question of well could can you teach an a music how to sing and the answer was no. He's missing or he's, his brain is wired in such a way that it's actually impossible for him to learn how to sing. But he, in all, all other things, is an incredible person. He just has this particular condition. And a lot of the time it does come from trauma. So if you've had um, traumatic brain injury um, or also viruses will do it as well. But it's very rare. It's about somewhere between 3 and 4% of the population. So someone says to me they're tone deaf. I can with pretty good, you know, confidence say, no, you're not. <laughs> but what's most important that comes from that is that the ability to sing in tune is a learnt skill. And if we think of it that way, if something is a learnt skill, then when we practice it, we learn it. So we have this current belief and you, I know you have the same shows in the UK, you know, when we've got Australia's got talent or X factor and all those sorts of things. And we get this, story given to us that these people have come out of nowhere and it's a a higher power given skill and in many you know it's not in many cases these people have formal music education and they just don't share that part of the story or they may have a very high predisposition for being able to sing in tune or have been around a particular musical family so the answer to the question is tone deafness as a term isn't isn't used in the research? There is a condition which means you can't hear the tone of music in particular, but when it comes to the regular everyday thing, it's actually just practice. And and it you know I absolutely understand. I, I teach groups of teachers, and every single one of them has someone in the class who says I was told not to sing and just move my mouth. And it's a traumatic. It's a traumatic thing to happen. It really really is, and to To bring those people back um, takes a huge amount of care so that they actually feel confident to sing. But funnily enough, it doesn't take that long. When they see if they can sing, particularly in a group, and they can sing in tune, that whole trauma disappears for them. So it's a great question. And the research is telling us a lot about what that idea of tone deafness actually is.
0: Oh, that 's lovely and a lovely answer that gives hope to a lot of people who think they can 't sing so <laughs> um, <laughs> next next question is from Ollie Tunmer, who um, is director of a percussion workshop company called big goes on um, he says i 'm frequently told by workshop participants that drumming makes them feel good can you shed some light on what actually happens to the body and brain while drumming? I know that's a big question. And then, um, mm-hmm. Mark Broad, who's a writer, editor, music leader, and director at Middlemarch, mm-hmm. um, asked, I believe there's research that supports the idea that rhythm work can help stimulate the development of literacy. If so, what's the latest, please. And where should I look? I think I'll probably oh, add yes. these bits in the show notes cause that's quite a big topic, isn't it? I know you've talked to me about <laughs> that. Um, I'll,
1: I'll start with the first one, which is why the feeling good one yes absolutely we all know that feeling if it does feel really good and if we go back let's take ourselves back to you know the very start of humans and the start of human society it was very common to have the use of drums or drums something that made a drum sound about having circles where you know we all clapped in rhythm we sang songs that's how we shared stories this this very literally primal part of ourselves that is about that is connected to rhythm and drumming. And rhythm is an incredibly um, heavily researched area at the moment because it's revealing extraordinary things about the brain. And the reason is if you think about the brain as having, it's a really synchronised thing. And we have these days when like we're on fire, we're just like things. everything's in sync and people talk about these amazing days. And it's really when your brain is actually syncing together really, really well. And we also do it in groups. It's why music festivals will always survive because the idea of jumping up and down and sync <laughs> with about, uh, you know, 50,000 other people makes us feel fantastic. <laughs> so it, it has does. this way of drawing us together, <laughs> um, which is really good, as well as helping to sync our brains. And one of the best things that we've seen is um, they've also followed the heartbeat and HeartBeats and a whole bunch of other measures in the body about arousal. So things like heat, sweat, uh, blood pressure, all those sorts of things. And then they've had them in drumming circles and they've actually found, and they've done it with all sorts of things, singers, um, they've found that our bodies literally sync together. We, our heartbeats start to align. Uh, We start to have really similar arousal sort of measures. And that's why we feel together because our bodies literally are pumping together. (laughs) So it's an incredible it's a rhythm's amazing. Rhythm's an incredible thing and we've always had it. Um now we're just starting to understand why it's so amazing for our brains and why we love it so much.
0: That's brilliant. And I think that I'll just add the some of the research that you've sent to me in the show notes to answer those questions properly, because it is a big topic, as you say, and it's fascinating.
1: Okay, so literacy, so what they've noticed is um, they've been trying to connect the fact that keeping, when we see little kids, um, one of the things they're constantly trying to do, and we're encouraging them to do, is to clap their hands together, which is actually quite hard for little ones to do, to do it sort of in beat. It's first of all getting their hands to come together at the same time, and then the other part of it is to actually be controlled enough to measure that you're in a, you maintain yourself in a beat. Now, they've noticed that kids who have a really good control of beat also tend to be really good at reading, and they've been trying to figure out why. And the answer is that being able to keep a beat on the outside of your body, so on a drum or by clapping, is kind of a behavioural, an outward behavioural thing, demonstration, piece of evidence of the fact that all the necessary wiring that needs to be wired together in their brains for reading is ready. So if a child can keep a beat while clapping, it means that those brains are ready to start reading. Now, one of the best pieces of research, I love it, looked at kids between the age of three and four, and it looked at those who could keep a beat and those who really struggled to keep a beat. And I think it was only for about 16 beats. But again, for a three, four-year-old, that's quite hard. Those kids who could keep a beat, they tracked them through and followed them into school and then looked at their reading level. So if they could keep a beat, they were more than likely to have a normal reading development once they hit school. Conversely, those kids who couldn't keep a beat, many of them displayed a delay in in the starting of their reading or some significant issues in their reading as they went through. Now, why I love this research is because if we can do that, between the age of three and four, we've got time between the age of four and five to actually do lots of rhythm activities with these kids to really, really help that wiring to happen. And I don't know, as a kindy teacher, I would love to know that I have a class full of kids in front of me who are cognitively ready to read
0: absolutely and also it kind of gives confidence to those non-specialist classroom teachers that actually if they're simply doing some body percussions and clapping stuff like that that can have a significant impact on a child
1: absolutely it's the best place to start
0: that's fantastic and where is that research is um can you just name the university and the
1: yes it's at northwestern uh university which is and it's called the brain vaults in um laboratory
0: ah yes nina krauss Krauss yeah brilliant that's Um, all right
1: I have that research
0: yeah they've got a great website and it's all indexed yes. isn't it so i will add the links um so the next question was from alison harmer who's an early years music specialist and she says what i'd like to know is and this is a great question because i haven't actually touched on all of this but while we've been talking i've been thinking really want to touch on this um mm. is there any neuroscientific research that has been carried out among very young children that's been replicated enough times so that we know it's reliable Um, which provides some findings that can be practically applied to how we actually teach music.
1: Uh, Yes, there has been. So we've now reached that stage where we've gone right down into babyhood with kids and doing musical activities. In many cases, we've done the musical activities more to understand how their brain is developing, not so much to understand is this technique of teaching music better than this technique. So we can't go from this one's better than this one for cognitive development. And again, I guess I would argue that it's contextual and we need to look at the kids in front of us. Um, But they have sort of looked at, I think like we talked about before, the the power of rhythm um, and actually working with kids to be able to clap to a rhythm, to be able to use a really small instrument and actually keep a beat, to be able to hear when the sound stops and when the sound starts to be able to hear a lot of very in-tune singing. So they start to develop their concept of in-tuneness, which actually starts to help them with language. Uh, lots of lots of different sounds, sa- being exposed to lots of different sounds, but not all at once. So understanding that kids need to hear lots of different sounds around them, but they need to be able to identify what instrument they come from. They need to be able to play with sound. All of, whenever I read all of these things, I, just, I do sit there and go, you know what? Orff and Kaddai really knew what they were doing, and I think we have to, I think we have to acknowledge that music educators and, and music education methods have spent far longer than neuroscientific researchers in actually going through trial and error with hundreds of thousands of millions of young children to figure out the best way to teach music. And I often sit there and wonder, have we, are we our own personal group of neuroscientists, but we've been working with the child. And a lot of the, a lot of the things that I see in the research, I go, well, you know, that's in Kadai. we've got music literacy, we've got orphan and playing with sounds and the singing all the time, and the use of movement in a rhythmic kind of way. You know it's all built up in those methodologies so a lot of the time i don't think there's a better or worse way it's about in many cases reinforcing many of the great things that music educators already do
0: absolutely yeah i think sometimes that happens with research and sometimes that evidence is in front of us but we just want more and more and, and it's important to have that research evidence obviously but those music educators have been doing it for years. And so is there a piece of research that you'd point Ali to or a piece, a collection of pieces of research that you point Ali to in terms of that sort of um, replicated enough so that it's reliable?
1: Um, I would point her in the direction
0: of the
1: University of Toronto and the infant lab. It's got a longer name than that, but there's an infant lab there. It's red. It's led by a lady, lady called Sandra Treehub, T R E H. and she has a lot of researchers in there, but they have really been at the forefront of all of that work. And the other one I would suggest is the McMaster University uh, lab that's there led by someone called Laurel Trainer. And they're the two, and they're quite close to each other physically, like I went from one to the other in half a day. And they have two infant labs in both of those. And um, they really have done the longitudinal work about infants and young children and, and their
0: development. Oh, that's fantastic. Brilliant. So we probably need to wrap up soon. So I've just got a couple more questions for you. So one is that all, all along these um, discussions, we've been sort of heading towards how we use the research and from my point of view, in terms of advocacy. Um, and that's something you've talked to me quite a bit about over the years. And, and now it's your mission to help people with that, isn't it? Using the research intelligently. Can you tell me a little bit more about the online resource that you've started developing?
1: Yeah, sure. Look, I've been, I've been so fascinated by how we use this research in an advocacy kind of way. And I've been fascinated from the point of view of, and I come from an Australian perspective, and I have worked in England, of what, which bits of research really hook which particular people and why. And the fact that also when we present, you know, lists and lists and lists of research and findings and stuff like that, they just seem to fall on deaf ears. It's like, why is that so? And I think it's because, one, they're not specific enough in in a lot of cases, and sometimes you just can't put a percentage on something, and that's totally okay. And that's where the breadth of knowledge and the breadth of research really helps. But I struck upon this idea, which is is the the idea that I'm really um, excited about, but also now I have an online community that is really starting to work with me with that idea, is the idea that we need to educate our communities in order to advocate so a lot of the time we have the experience where suddenly we get that awful email or phone call or someone you know stops us in the hallway and says oh look we're doing the budget and look it doesn't look like we've got money for your program next year and suddenly we go into a panic and it's like ah pulling as much you know information off the internet as we possibly can to try and make a case now I don't think that works. I don't think it works for us and I don't think it works for the the people who are making the decisions because I like to view those people as being not against music education, but just ill-informed. So when it comes to informing them, I, as a music educator, I'm the expert. So how can I educate them continuously about the benefits of music education? So either we never get to that point where we get that horrible email or that terrible phone call or we get to have a discussion with them about saying you know when they come and say look we're really struggling with the budget we know the value of your program but we're really having a difficult time how can we work together and that's my that's my ideal for changing the narrative because i know when i work with kids if you do the same thing over and over and over and over again they kind of get used to it but as soon as you change your tack, as soon as you do something different they suddenly go oh something's different what's happening i'll listen again and that's what I'm hoping that this will do and it, it's it's different for every group I definitely have a different approach to principals or heads of school they need those statistics they need to know how they're going to justify it to their their communities and to their boards about why they want to introduce a music program so I sort of head down that direction whereas you know working with parents it's like okay what's best for your child in the long run where does music sit for them and how will it benefit them as a human being in the in the future rather than a career in music sort of thing so we have the a group called the bigger better brains community on facebook and we've now got a website um, which provides ongoing sort of professional learning for every single month straight to your inbox so you can do professional readings we create these fact cards that you can put in newsletters or share on social media and the idea is we've got lots of videos um, the idea is that it's it keeps it in the, the eye of the school leader or the parents or whatever. And it's a it's a sort of, it's education by stealth, where we're just providing them with information to which they can make up their own mind, but we're doing it consistently. And I think this is our mantra is we educate to advocate.
0: That's fantastic. And it's little bite-sized pieces of information, isn't it? And it, I've been in there and it's very digestible because there are lots of videos um and lots of little myth busting cards things that Mm -hmm. you know there's this all these pieces of received wisdom that that get distributed around and then sometimes you sort of question it and think is that really right or is that really the right way to express that so Mm -hmm. that's uh, you know really some great resources in there and finally this may be tricky but i really like people to come away with a little bit of a takeaway from these conversations do you think you could give us three practical pieces of advice or pieces of research or anything else that people can use or put into practice straight away in advocating for music education
1: yeah i think the first thing is dream big and not be afraid Basically, you know, a lot of the time we try and protect our music education programs and we just we just want to hold on to what we've got. And I think a lot of the time we compromise what we're doing because we just that's the best I can get. And I think we need to set a course for ourselves in whatever school or whatever area we're in. And say no, I actually want a three-year program for my students, or I, you know, I want to have every kid involved, just not the kids who need extension or something like that. So I think setting that vision for ourselves is important. The second thing I would say is about to live out that vision whose mind do you need to change and how and that's not necessarily one person in some cases it's the parent body how do you I see my parents in my school as my students as well it's my job to educate them and to help them understand what's happening for their child and exactly very specifically what their role is in what they do Uh, it could be the principal it couldn't sometimes I don't know about in England but in Australia sometimes the person with the power isn't the principal it's the deputy principal or deputy head of school they hold the strings so how do you start to, to have a conversation a meaningful advocacy conversation with them um, and sometimes that can be an interesting experience and then the last thing is I think the best advocates in the world are our students we they are fascinated by their brains. They are fascinated by learning. And the one thing I have been surprised by very happily is that my kids develop, have developed a language and continue to develop that language about what's my brain doing today? What's it learning? What's it struggling with? If I feel really frustrated about this, what's actually happening inside my head and why is that a good thing? Why do I not need to run away from that? That will be fearful of that. And I think in the end, they're the ones who have the offhanded comment to the the head of school. They are the ones that at home can say, don't disturb me, mum. I'm doing my practice. My brain's growing right now. Um, It's all those sorts of, yeah, giving, giving them language, but also giving them a similar kind of fascination with how their brain is learning. Because if anything, I want to send my students out into the world, understanding how they learn, how it feels, how it sounds, how it looks and also to understand when that learning is sometimes frustrating and why that's a good thing.
0: That's brilliant. I'm so pleased you've uh, ended on the young person because they are the best advocates for this. Mm -hmm. And also, it's just really great when they're informed about their learning and able Mm -hmm. to talk about that. So that's fantastic. So thank you ever so much, Anita. I've absolutely loved talking to you as always, and I really appreciate what you're doing for all of us involved in music education and the young people we work with. If you want to hear more from Anita, there's a great video of a recent interview with uh, Anita by an Australian radio station, and I'll share the link to that in the show notes. Um, I'll also share details of Anita's Bigger Better Brains online training resource and her TED Talks. Thank you, Anita. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening, everybody, and make sure to subscribe so you get to hear about future episodes. that's the end of our show this time thank you for listening to the music for education and Wellbeing podcast and make sure to subscribe so that you get to hear about future episodes if you'd like to be on the podcast or you'd like to know more about me and how i help music and creative organizations through communications then visit writing-services.co.uk and get in touch thanks for listening and have a great week